Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible artist, part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar. This is Hear Me Out. And I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Jack Thorne. Awesome, awesome. Awesome. I have to apologise for the fact that I am coming to you from a wardrobe today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Fantastic. actually in the Caribbean and I've had to switch off the aircon so it's not noisy. So Why I'm are you in the Caribbean? Have I, interrupted your, have I interrupted your holiday? <laughs> no, no, no. But I've learnt now what my studio needs to be and my studio setup is a wardrobe and um, I've sort of hung some sheets over the doors so it's going to get mighty steamy. <laughs> okay, so Jack... Yes. Let's dive in. Okay. You, you're clutching your Miller. I've got my Arthur Miller. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, this was my... I did Desert Island Discs last year and uh, Arthur Miller Place One was my chosen book. Oh, well, I like to think of this as the Desert Island Discs for plays. So awesome. I'm thrilled that you've done Desert Island Discs. That could be like your practice run for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Fantastic. you've given it away there, but go on. Tell the listener what the speech is that you've picked. Well... I don't know what you quite call this this speech. I I think it's business is definitely business. I think is probably what you would call the speech from Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. Classic. And I was so pleased when you did this because no one's picked an Arthur Miller yet. Oh. And of course he is, well, certainly Death of a Salesman is one of those plays that is sort of almost universally considered one of the best plays ever written. Why do people believe this is such an exceptional play? Oh, I can say why I think it's an exceptional play. Great. I think it's an exceptional play because I think it's a study of masculinity and capitalism. There's nothing quite like it. I think the relationship between particularly the three men Mm. is devastating. And that idea of the importance of presenting a front 
of needing a lie, of creating a version of yourself which makes you uh, happier with who you truly are is such a dangerous thing and you know I'd say it is probably a bit more masculine than it is feminine in terms mm. of that energy to lie about yourself mm. but the way that he does that the way that he gets inside those three as they destroy themselves is quite remarkable and I don't think anyone's written about it as well before or since. It does feel like one of those things that becomes more and more relevant as well, I guess just as we get more clued up on it as a society. Like it feels like yeah. a very current conversation to talk about the fact that, like you said, mostly men need to stop feeling like they have to present a certain front and it's okay to be yeah. emotional, it's okay to break down. It's, you know, that we're talking about that a lot it's now. It's okay to... Fail. It's okay to yeah. not be the most well liked. You know that 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 difference between being liked and well liked runs right through the play, mm. and being the most well liked because you helped name a boy or you helped. And there's so many lies running through the whole thing in terms of what what Willie actually has done, what Willie mm. did do, and this conversation is probably the most truthful mm. conversation in the in the whole play. Can you give a quick background of, you know, if it's possible to summarise the play just in a couple of sentences and then just say where in the play this bit that you're talking about happens? Yes. So it is a story about a man and his two sons and wife uh, living in New York. He is a salesman. He is in real mental difficulty and is struggling to hold on to the present as the past is invading him all the time. And he and the boys are looking to a future whilst he is also uh, continually att in t attempting suicide. Uh, or contemplating suicide, definitely. How many times he actually attempts it, we're not sure. Uh, and in this scene, he is meeting... He has worked for the same company for 34 years. Mm. And in this scene, uh, he is meeting the son of the man who gave him his this job. And uh, the son who he claims he named, which we have no idea whether that's true or not, <laughs> is trying to understand what he wants and what... Willie wants to do is stay in New York and work in New York because he's tired mm. and he realises that being on the road all the time and working the crazy hours that he'd be expected to as a salesman work on the road has maybe caused some of his mental difficulty mm. and so he's basically begging this man to let him sell in New York and this man Howard claims he doesn't have a position for him in New York. And the more that Willie goes on, uh, the more we understand what's going on in his head um, and the more Howard does too and Howard ends up firing him. Mm. And it's the most honest Willie is in this, you know, constantly through the play, Willie is inflating himself. He is saying things about himself or his 
son, sons, but particularly his eldest son, Biff, mm. that is, you know, all about machismo. And in this scene, he comes very close to telling the truth <laughs> as he becomes ever more desperate. And then he starts this speech and this speech about uh, a the vision of what kind of salesman he thought he was going to grow old into. Mm. And he's clearly so far away from it. And I guess what's also interesting is, even if he's far away from it, it's not a desirable image, I think. Even the what, gold the standard. Slippers? Yeah, you know, he describes a man who's 85, is it? Yeah, you know, yeah He's yeah. still working at 85, travelling around, Yeah, whatever it is. It, you know, he mentions the... The funeral is full of just other salesmen. Yeah. So it's not even like it's a gold standard that is a really wholesome no, desire. No, but he was well-liked. He was well-liked. Mm. Uh, at least according to Willie, he was well-liked. Yeah. When did you first come across this? I think I read it at university. My play, uh, you'll see, is full of... Oh, annotations. Uh, lots. Yeah, but also crossing out sections of the play. Like I re-edited the play for Arthur Miller because <laughs> that's what um, it was very interesting revisiting the marginalia. Uh, but you know that's what um, being young and and <laughs> stupid gets you that you think you can do it better. But uh, I, I did it with three sisters too. Uh, I I did it quite a lot at that age. I think I think it was my way of trying to understand the plays was just to try and rewrite them a little bit. Mm. So I did, to my shame, I did try, try and rewrite that. Jack, you and me both. I'm not even a writer, but in my production company, we had an idea once that we wanted to do a sort of abridged Midsummer Night's Dream. This is with my... So I run a company as well where we take plays into people's private homes, like a sort of oh, luxury event awesome. entertainment thing. And it was for that. We were like, we'd love to have a really short, pithy Midsummer Night's Dream. And I thought, I can do a cut. I can do the cut. And I did a cut and we sat down to read it and I'd somehow got it down to like 35 minutes. <laughs> 35 minutes? And my business partner was like, you have removed every shred of poetry from this play. <laughs> it's just like plot, 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 finished. So you said you think you discovered it at university. Yes. Did you put it on? Did you rewrite it and put it on? Uh, no, I didn't try and put it on. I think... It's not the sort of play you really want to do with students. I'm sure there are lots of very good student productions of it, but, you know, it is a play about ageing. Yes, it's so not about youth. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, Happy and Biff are incredible, but even they're in their 30s. You sort of need age. And I think the older I get and the more I read it, the older I get, the more I understand it too. Mm. You know, the, that thing of just trying to hang on to ideas of yourself yeah that was um a conversation actually that came up in another episode that that i think is a really great signal of brilliant writing when you can get something out of it at one age a different thing out of it at a different age and then another different thing out of it at a different age that it sort of keeps giving in new ways absolutely and that thing of that what he's doing and what i love about miller is how clever he is but that thing of attacking a culture of capitalism, not by going, look how easily this person is discarded, but rather going, look what this culture has made. Mm. You know, that it's just, it's much more, it's just, it's just so deft and brilliant and I love him. I read a really interesting thing once about saying it's more important to be a capitalist than a pioneer because in this speech he talks about his brother, doesn't he, and his dad mm. and them sort of being part of the gold rush 
And again, I think as a society, we're sort of coming back to that idea that to be an adventurer is the higher yeah. power, is the higher being. Um, but that was so a point where to be an adventurer was, was not as good as just staying in your state and selling and selling and selling and just making as much money as possible. And, and it's interesting in relation to Linda, Willie's wife, being the one that stops him going to Alaska in that up to that point, and that's very near the end of the play that you get that reveal, Right. up to that point, you always assume that she's the one that sort of sees clearly mm-hmm. and sort of sees, you know, that has escaped the sort of disease that has that has taken Biff and Happy and, and Willie. Mm. And then she basically says, you know, you've got a great job here, why risk it? Mm. And Willie is so easily manipulated all the way through the play. He's so easily manipulated. But by encouraging him to stay here, that's also part of the death, you know. And it's interesting Miller does that to a character that otherwise isn't given much space. You know, that the, uh, otherwise Linda, Linda, it's not one of his better plays when it comes to writing good parts for women. <laughs> Linda's sort of push to the side no she's not she's she's totally uh, she's totally compelling and real and in herself but she doesn't have the psychological space that the other characters are left with she's basically left to be the one that's angry and disappointed and in love and everything else but she's she's a response she's constantly responding rather than given power within herself and then this one moment rather than active Exactly. And then there's mm. one moment she's active and yeah. and it's in many ways the worst moment in the play. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's just, it's really interesting you yeah. know, that he does that. And I don't know how conscious he would be of it, you know, but yeah. Well, I often think that certainly when you think about studying stuff at school or at university, you know, we're so quick to look at writing and say the writer clearly intended here to blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I mean, maybe you can speak to this, obviously, as an incredible writer yourself. To what extent do, do you find people attach intention to you that you know you're like that was just fluke that was just a thought coming out of my head yeah I think there's a lot of, I, I mean <laughs> yes there is an awful lot of that and I remember getting I left theatre arts a level after a class in which we spent the entire ep- uh, lesson I almost called it episode <laughs> <laughs> um, we spent the entire lesson discussing the significance of a blue kite in my mother said I never should and I just said, I don't believe the writer would have thought that long about the colour blue. And we spent an hour talking about the colour blue. And it was just one of those lessons where you just kind of go, no one's really thinking here. Everyone's just sort of saying things. Yes. You know, and uh, and it just, my irritation with the subject went then. There are, I, I um, a very good friend of mine is the writer Laura Wade. Mm, and amazing writer. I love her work. Yeah. And I think she's an extraordinary writer but also she is so intentional um right and so I think I'm much more scruffy around the sides in terms of writing and when I feel like I'm writing well is when it's sort of spilling out without much thought with Laura I've seen her construct and I've seen multiple drafts of her plays Mm. and the way that she hones and the way that I, I think that Probably, and I know this wasn't true of My Mother Said I Never Should because it was a play that was 
to some degree found in the rehearsal room you know that, that there right. was a lot of there was a real collaborative process behind it all right but with with Laura she probably does think about what color the kite should be for an hour so there are <laughs> writers for whom that could be true of but it's not true of me and I don't know whether it's true of Miller I don't you know I watched a very interesting documentary about him by his daughter mm. and it was one of those ones that was really good to watch with Rachel my wife because there's not much made or written about writers writing mm. and it was just very interesting to see it from the perspective of his child and sort of you know the the sort of madness of being a writer <laughs> and yeah. and actually how he coped with being someone that that wrote the most perfect first set of plays that I think any writer's ever written in terms of just coming out the gate and then from then on struggled to find a voice that was as compelling to a public and what that did to him and when the critics said this doesn't live up to your early work you know that that coping with that for your life you know must be very very tough. I wasn't aware of that so all the the sort of millers that we know like all my sons and you know the crucible and view from a bridge are they all they were all early stuff this is place this is place one right so this is place one Arthur Miller Death of a Salesman the crucible all my sons uh memory of two Mondays which is an earlier version of a view from the bridge and a view from the bridge (laughs) All right, so yeah, like all the ones that are really famous were all the in ones that, that first are really batch. famous. And he just, God. All My Sons was 47, uh, Death of a Salesman was 49, Crucible mm. was 53, View from the Bridge was 55. God, he's churning them out, like churning in out that classics. Eight year, in that eight year period, he wrote four plays, that I think, uh, you know, certainly are four of the most significant plays of the last, you know, 100 years. And he he wrote them one after the other. And what a run. Yeah. And uh, and I think a lot of, I didn't have this, but that a lot of writers that I see around me that had that big hit in their 20s, it's tough. It's mm. really tough, you know. So how and, old uh, was he? Yeah, was he young? I'm, I'm trying to think how I th- old. I think he was. I think he was Oh, I've got it young. here. He was born in 1915. Right. So he was 32. Yeah, so still relatively young, but not a sort of straight out of school type youth. Yeah. But 32 to 40, yeah, 32 Did something to happen to, do we know, in the documentary you watched, did something happen to him in terms of, that you think, stopped the writing? Well, he became, he became incredibly famous. And yeah. And married Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but just, and also, you know, you have your moment when suddenly everything comes out right, and then you have another moment when it doesn't. You know, that's the tragedy of writing, that you just kind of sit there and go, I was much better yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) But it's due today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's what it feels like. You know, we get, I think I get one good day's writing in 14. Oh, God. on, On average. And the rest of the time you just sit there and just hope, you know. Do you find, because obviously you've written for stage and screen. Yes. Do you find you have a different process between them no I think I think that different processes happen when you write different stuff but I don't really you know that that just you know my process for writing his star materials is very different from writing you know a play about two people in a room but <laughs> no I that there's a lot more similarity between doing Harry Potter for the stage and doing his star materials for the telly than there is yeah. from doing afterlife or do you know what I mean like you know that it just it just depends on the 
genre and also the expectation and everything else, you know. Well, that leads to a slightly different question as well, which I've always been interested in, which is, do you write, I guess for you, a lot of the time when you've written stuff, the theatre knows that it's a new play by you that they're having. And so do you write, no? <laughs> You're like, no, certainly not. So there's no sense, I guess I'm saying, of, of going, I know this is a play going into an intimate space or going into a huge, going in, like Harry Potter going into the palace or whichever one it is. Well, there, is there is a sense of that, but there is... It doesn't affect what you write. Uh, no, and often you write something for one space and then they don't want it. And you're trying to sell it to another space. So, uh, yeah, you know. Because I find when I read plays, it strikes me straight away what kind of a theatre it should be in. I hear you. So I started off at the bush. The old bush. The old bush, yes, yes, when we were above the pub. Yeah. And I think I wrote all my early plays with that space in mind. Yeah. I don't think I was ever quite able to leave that space alone because I loved it so much. And now I think I've probably got a similar relationship with the old Vic oh. in that I've only done two plays there, two different plays there, but because Christmas Carol's been in there so much, there's something about that space that I just, I think that's the theatre that I imagine in my head when I write, yeah, yeah. I think, a tiny bit. The Duchess of Malfi at the Old Vic was my first professional job out of drama school. Wow. And I had done the, um, I had done the 24-hour plays just before oh, right, I started yeah. drama school, in between finishing uni and starting at Lambda. So effectively, the Old Vic was the first stage, you know, professional yeah, stage yeah, yeah. I stood on. And for years, I mean, it's been now too long and there's probably been too much change over and obviously with artistic director changes and stuff as well. But, you know, certainly for a few years, it was one of those stages I loved to revisit because it felt like coming home. Yeah, yeah. There was a real sense even of the, the ushers and the people working behind the bar. It was all one big family. Absolutely. It's such a great theatre. I love it. Who was your writer and who was your director of your 24-hour plays? Oh, cracking ones. Corkers. Right. The director was Natalie Ibu. Yeah. And the writer was Ella Hickson. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? That's a, that's a good combination. Ella's writing. I mean, even back then, yeah. we were very aware of going, we've got the play. Like, we've got the one. This is amazing. Have you ever done, because they do sort of celeb ones as well. Have you ever done one? I did one, yes. I did one, God, it must be 10 years ago now. So, to, again, just to explain to the listener, so the 24-hour plays was, it was a sort of, does what it says on the tin, the idea was you got a collection of actors, writers, directors, producers, and you all met at sort of 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday as the current show went down. Yeah. And you sort of have a big group bonding exercise very quickly, don't you? I don't know whether you had the same, but we had to sort of bring an object, almost, almost like show and tell. Yeah, it was just bring, a way bring of... Bringing objects. Yeah, yeah, it was just like trying to get everyone to know each other very quickly. And then... Everyone goes home except the writers and the producers, and the writers pick actors like picking teams. Is that right? I I don't. Did I get a choice? And maybe in yours you were just given them. I don't know. I don't know. There might have been that. There might. I think have been in the that. Mortals version, in the Muggle version, <laughs> you um, they sort of would pick. Te- you know, each writer would get to say, "Okay, I want that one," and then yeah, you know, everyone picks. You might be right. You might be right. And yeah. then you have a little team. And then the writer has to stay up all night writing a play that is how long? Ten minutes? Fifteen minutes? I think I think it had to be less than 10. Oh, did it? Less than 10? I don't think they want them to be that long. <laughs> they just want to get the celebrities on stage, do a skit and then yeah. get Imagine off. Imagine what it's like with normal people. <laughs> <laughs> so then the writers write all night and the actors, you return at sort of eight in the morning and you are given your script and you're given your director, you rehearse and you tech and then that night at 7.30, you're on. the show happens. Yeah. I mean, what's the writing process like? 
absolutely terrifying. Yeah. You know, that thing of just going, oh, right, yeah, no, it's this time. I don't think I'd do it now. Oh, really? I don't think I'd be, I, I just, I'd get too tired. I'd just be like, oh, I'd just be a mess. I wouldn't be able to do your job. I'm not very good staying up all night. I'm not an all-nighter. No, I'm not anymore. I get very sad when I'm tired. I'm not anymore. You <laughs> have kids and you're just like, I'm tired. Back on the speech, just quickly. Yes. We're having too much fun talking about other things. Um, is there any particular part, delving in very detailed on the speech, any particular part that you think is you know, a particular line or a particular moment that you think is most pertinent or moving? I think um, that the part towards the end where he says, um, now pay attention, your father, in 1920, I had a big year. I averaged $170 a week in commissions. And Howard interrupts and says, now, Willie, you never averaged. And Willie bangs his hand on the desk. I averaged $170 a week in the year of 1928. And your father came to me, or rather, I was in the office here. It was right over this desk. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And then Howard just goes. And just that thing of, that thing of that he's building to something, you know, you're, you're, mm. what his dad said to him and... Howard's just like, I'm done with this man. As a writer, you're always working out what to learn from other writers. I think you just stay hungry in that respect and that thing of that that was what the speech was building to. Mm. That was what the whole point of the speech was. That was what Willie was working his way towards as he was, you know, talking about his own father, talking about Alaska, talking about salesmen in green slippers and everything else. And then it gets to the end of the speech and he doesn't get to the end of the speech. He's denied it. That the man just walks out. He knows that Willie, you know, has nothing to him. And and because Willie has inflated himself and inflated an idea of what that world was and inflated how important he was in that world, mm. uh, Howard has no patience with him and leaves him. Yeah, the, the unfinished speech, I think that's what I love about it. I, I think it's remarkable. Yeah, I guess it's it's one of the things that we're told as actors, you know, at moments of fragility, it's better to act trying not to cry than crying. And it's a sort of similar thing. It's like sometimes it's better to not finish the speech. Like the effect is much greater by not being able to say the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's true? About not crying? It might have just been a, um, a thing people said to make actors not feel quite so bad if they weren't able to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of we've them. We've done those sets with the cry sticks. Yeah, tear yeah, sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was in one where they literally like put, it wasn't even like, the tear stick makes your eyes water, doesn't it? But like, I was actually given tears. You know, like they blobbed things on my face and I was like, now that is insulting. <laughs> Right, this has been amazing. I'm just going to check my notes and see if there's anything else that I wanted to ask that we haven't covered already. Oh, I mean, I guess one obvious question is just, have you have you seen it? Have you seen a great production of it? I, I didn't see the production that Marion Elliott put on and I cursed myself that I didn't because I wish I'd seen that. I've seen a couple of productions and nothing that's... Nothing that is as good as the production in my head. Yeah. But it sounds as though that production was that good. Where was it? It was at the Young Vic, I think. Oh, yes, I know which one you're talking about. It's gone to Broadway now as well. Yeah. 
I am hungry for seeing a version of the play which delivers on the script. And that's so hard to do. And I think it probably is his masterpiece. For me, it's Mm. his masterpiece of all the plays. And it's just so devastating. So unlike 20-year-old Jack, you would not cross out pages of it now? I would not cross out a single (laughs) word, not a single stage direction, and I'm so sorry that I did. I'm very sorry, Miller. Sorry, Miller. I'm very, very sorry. I'm very, very sorry. But you were my Desert Island Disc. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that makes up for it yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, can we hear the speech? I am not an actor. That's okay. Uh, but that's so unfair, because mostly on your podcast, you've got incredibly <laughs> accomplished actors. That is, that is true. And now you've got a real idiot. But that's okay. It's always a very casual read, so it's, it's totally fine. It's just so that people can hear the thing from beginning to end. Um. I'm going to read in the stage directions because why not? (laughs) Willie, desperately. Uh, Just let me tell you a story, Howard. Howard, because you've got to admit business is business. Willie, angrily, business is definitely business. But just listen for a minute. You don't understand this. When I was a boy, 18, 19, I was already on the road. And there was a question in my mind as to whether selling had a future for me. Because in those days, I had a yearning to go to Alaska. See, there were three gold strikes in one month in Alaska. And I felt like going out just for the ride, you might say. Howard, barely interest. Don't say. Willie, oh yeah, my father lived for many years in Alaska. He was an adventurous man. We've got quite a little streak of self-reliance in our family. I thought I'd go out with my older brother and try to locate him and maybe settle in the north with the old man. And I was almost decided to go when I met a salesman in the Parker house. His name was Dave Singleman and he was 84 years old, and he drummed merchandise in 31 states. And old Dave, he'd go up to his room, you understand, uh, put on his green velvet slippers, I'll never forget, and pick up his phone and call the buyers, and without ever leaving his room, at the age of 84, he made his living. And when I saw that, I realised that selling was the greatest career a man could want. Because what could be more satisfying than to be able to go at the age of 84 into 20 or 30 different cities and pick up a phone and be remembered and loved and helped by so many different people? Do you know when he died? And by the way, he died the death of a salesman in his green velvet slippers in the smoker of the New York, New Haven and Hartford going into Boston. When he died, hundreds of salesmen and buyers were at his funeral. Things were sad on a lot of trains for months after that. He stands up. Howard has not looked at him. In those days, there was personality in it, Howard. There was respect and comradeship and gratitude in it. Today, it's all cut and dried and there's no chance for bringing friendship to bear or personality. You see what I mean? They don't know me anymore, Howard, moving away towards the right. That's just the thing, Willie. Willie, if I had $40 a week, that's all I'd need. $40, Howard. Howard, kid, I can't take blood from a stone. Uh, I, Willie, desperation is on him now. Howard, the year Al Smith was nominated, your father came to me and, Howard, starting to go off. I've got to see some people, kid. Willie, stopping him. I'm talking about your father. There were promises made across this desk. You mustn't tell me you've got people to see. I put 34 years into this firm, Howard, and now I can't pay my insurance. You can't eat the orange and throw the peel away. A man is not a piece of fruit. After a pause, 
Now, pay attention. Your father, in 1928, I had a big year. I averaged $170 a week in commissions. Howard, impatiently. Now, Willie, you never averaged. Willie, banging his hand on the desk. I averaged $170 a week in the year of 1928. And your father came to me, or rather, I was in the office here. It was right over this desk. And he put his hand on my shoulder. Howard, getting up. You'll have to excuse me, Willie. I've got to see some people. Pull yourself together. Going out. I'll be back in a little while. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. I forgot yeah. as well how much Howard calls him kid. Like, there's nothing more patronising. And it's someone that he saw born. Yeah. And all the stage directions are so brutal as well. Like, the bit when Howard says, barely interested. Absolutely. No, he's not He's not brilliant on stage directions, Miller. He leaves a little, little more room than than others do. But when he uses stage directions, he's 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 great with them. So you would like more? I'd add a couple. I'd add a couple. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't write them. I wouldn't write them. I wouldn't touch the text. You wouldn't dare. It's perfect. This has been so delightful, Jack. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristan Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. Our heartfelt thanks to the estates and license holders that allow us to read our guests' speech choices. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can follow us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out and enjoy visual clips of the interviews on our YouTube channel. Finally, if you would like to support Hear Me Out, go ahead and click the Patreon link at the bottom of the episode bios.